listening to Sugar House Sound. In 1973, the militant American Indian movement, commonly referred to as AIM, and 250 Oglala Sioux Indians began the longest occupation of domestic territory since the Civil War. It was a frigid day in late February at Wounded Knee on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. This is the story, the context, and the history of a Native American community reclaiming pride in their identity. This speaks of the right to stand up against the long history of structural oppression and of the importance of the Native American identity. For the Occupation of Wounded Knee narrative, I'm Tim Lindgren. For the following 71 days, the occupation would capture the world's attention. This would be a battle of bullets and eventually negotiations that would unveil between AIM and the local authorities, accompanied by FBI and the National Guard. The occupation and siege took place at the same location as the famous Wundanee massacre in 1890, where US government soldiers violently responded to Native American attempts to return to their traditional ways of life by spiritual means. Back then, 146 mostly unarmed Native American men, women and children were massacred. Once again in 1973, American ground became a question of contested spaces as a symbolic rebirth of the Native American strength and a violent reclaim of their land clashed with the federal authorities. According to AIM, the occupation was a response to a long history of unacceptable and insecure living conditions, mistreatment by federal and local agencies, and a continuity of broken treaties. In the words of one of AIM's front figures, Dennis Banks, It is sad when mistreatment and abuse and neglect and murder against Indian people become common. This is where it started and this is where it's going to end. When you abuse people for so long that the only thing they can turn to is confrontational politics, they are going to do that. It is a good day to die. On the contrary to AIM, the local and federal agencies saw the occupation as an unacceptable, violent and rebellious, illegitimate claim of land. But what did Dennis Banks mean when he stated that it is a good day to die? And was there more to AIM and the occupation than a rebellious civil unrest? Now, 35 years after the occupation has been mostly forgotten, these are the questions we must ask. The fact that the occupation of Wounded Knee in 1973 was a militant rebellion cannot and should not be disregarded. The occupation claimed the lives of two Native American occupants and left several U.S. officials and occupants wounded. Yet there seemed to be a deeper structural reason to why confrontational politics was, in the words of Dennis Banks, the only option. As the occupation has been analyzed and the Native American voices have been given more space, these structures are gradually being untangled. Through observation of the surroundings, historical circumstances and personal experiences, the central aspect of the occupants seem to be not of a militant nature, but rather a rebirth of the Native American indigenous identity. According to the expressions of the participants, the militant aspect was a medium to reclaim their pride and strength. This meant the pride in being Native American. 
This pride was in everything, before European settlers took their land, restricted their movements to Native American reservations, and implemented policies which aimed to deconstruct their cultures and try to bring them into Western society. This occupation was a return to the deeply rooted values of interconnected and interdependent communities, based on respectful and unbreakable spiritual connections with the land. Many Native Americans saw the occupation as an opportunity to once again stand up for their rights and in their own way deal with the history of their marginalization. According to Dennis Banks, they were once again Indian warriors proud of being Indian. In a vague articulation, the occupation of Wundanese seems to have been grounded in the hopes to return to indigenous cultural values and to return the pride in the indigenous identity. But how was the Native American identity suppressed? And why did AIM and many of the Native Americans of the Pine Ridge Reservation claim that confrontation was the only option? Before the occupation in 1973, the Pine Ridge Reservation had been socially, political and economically dysfunctional due to internal racism, corruption and misgovernance. About three years prior to the occupation, the Nixon administration ruled for increased self-governing for Native American reservations. For the Pine Ridge Reservation, this both decreased earlier funding-based socioeconomic opportunities and gave more authority to the tribal government. This policy shift paved the way for racial factionalism as the lack of a pre-existing functional government led to centralization of resources for socio-economic stability. In 1972, one year before the occupation, Dick Wilson was elected tribal chairman and directly instigated a patrimonialist system of racist oppression, a system in which the adoption of the American way of life and mixed-blood Indians was highly favored. Soon after, Wilson's power brought a rapid increase in corruption, racist violence, and civil rights violation to the community. As of February 1973, the time of the occupation, 150 complaints of civil rights violation had been reported to the federal government, which disregarded these con concerns. In response, the traditional Oglala Indians established the Oglala Sioux Civil Rights Organization, to challenge Wilson's authoritarianism. But without any actual political recognition, the civil rights organization found itself unsuccessful and a new force was required for effective mobilization. The organization asked the American Indian movement for help to put pressure on Wilson's regime and were brought into the Pine Ridge Reservation. According to Ellen Camp, one of the many Native American women activists in the resistance, we decided we needed the aim in here because our men were scared. They hung to the back. With the addition of AIM to the Oglala Sioux Civil Rights Organization, the pressure on Wilson's regime was in the pressure on Wilson's regime was increasing. The situation spiraled out of control when AIM came into the reservation. According to AIM, their presence was nothing more than an open meeting with the Oglala Sioux Civil Rights Organization. Yet, Wilson believed that AIM and the Civil Rights Organization were preparing to overthrow the Bureau of Indian Affairs and called in the U.S. Marshal Service, including the FBI, to stabilize the situation. 
the local police, marshal service and FBI set up roadblocks which closed off the community from the outside world. During the turmoil, AIM took 11 residents as hostage. By the second day, gunfire was exchanged between US marshal officials and the occupants. AIM declared their goals for negotiations, which would later adjust throughout the duration of the occupation. AIM asked for an investigation of the Bureau of Indian Affairs and asked that the Senate on Foreign Relations Committee would hold hearings on the vast abundance of broken treaties between Native Americans and the US government. AIM also sent a small delegation to the UN headquarters in New York to get international recognition. Even though this was unsuccessful, it marked a change in UN policy which began to analyze Native issues more in detail. Within 10 days, the roadblocks were lifted and Native and non-Native American civil rights activists flooded Wounded Knee. With an increase in support, AIM declared Wounded Knee an independent nation and asked to begin negotiations on such basis. Hostilities persisted and fire was continuously exchanged between AIM and the federal government through the 71-day occupation. About two weeks into the occupation, Arlington Wood Jr. representing the US Justice Department began negotiations and the situation seemed to gradually stabilize. However, negotiations fell through when Wood fell ill and hostility increased when Kent Frizzle took over after Wood's position as the Justice Department's negotiator. About 30 days into the occupation, Frizzle put severe pressure on AIM by cutting off electricity, food and water supplies in the midst of the cold South Dakota winter. From then on, supplies were smuggled in and airdropped into Wounded Knee by individuals sympathizing with the cause. The occupation continued in a stalemate until Lawrence Lamont, one of the key participants of the occupation, was shot and killed by a government sniper. Lamont was a local Oglala Lakota Indian and his death led to AIM's surrender and the end of the occupation. By that time, the occupation had caused the death of two Native Americans. Two state officials and 13 occupants had also been wounded. In 1974, the trial on Dennis Bank and Russell Mean began, but all charges were dropped due to prosecutorial misconduct. The event itself is often depicted either as a heroic reclaim for land, or as rebellious and illegitimate occupation. Yet, to understand the deeply philosophical reasons that led to the occupation, we also have to understand the history of attempted deconstruction of the Native American culture and identity. Beyond the surface level incidents that sparked occupation, there are deep historical patterns of government-funded attempts to deconstruct the Native American identity which brought dysfunction to many Native American communities such as the Pine Ridge Reservation. Such changes also made many Native Americans feel that the occupation in 1973 was legitimate. As Dennis Banks explained, What is the sacrifice that Native Americans have made We can't tell it by the amount of land that was taken from us. We can't tell it by the massacres they have committed. But the totality of it, that's where the pain is. In 1887, the Dawes Allotment Act was brought into action to merge Native Americans into the Western American mainstream society with the purpose to minimize the need for reservations. Yet, 
The Allotment Act was built on the European and Western values of land ownership and land improvement, which in many ways differed substantially from the Native American social and cultural foundation. Whereas the Western values were based on individual ownership and a necessity to cultivate land in accordance to settlement structures, individual and direct land ownership was a very foreign concept to Native American culture, which organized production and life in communal settings that were limited to the carrying capacity of the land. In the Native American culture, it was and still is as impossible to own land as it is to own the sun the stars and the air. Yet the Allotment Act of 1887 intended to move Native Americans into the Western understanding of land ownership and land cultivation by allotting plots of land based on individual ownership for settled agricultural production. Further, to accommodate Native American Westernization, the 1887 Act opened the opportunity for US citizenship. Such could be achieved by applying to the Western concept of productive settlement agriculture for 25 years and was also determined by blood quantum, meaning level of Indian versus white heritage. The impact of the 1887 Allotment Act on the Native American communities was profound. Native Americans, not believing in Western land ownership, often sold the land to non-natives or leased it to a price regulated by the BIA. The BIA also sold land that was not allotted to Native Americans. Hence, the size of Native American reservations decreased dramatically from 215,000 square miles to only 75,000. This, in combination with the blood quantum requirement for citizenship, put a rift in many Native American communities. It profoundly began to change the deeply rooted relationship with the land based on communal ownership and the social and cultural reproduction within the Indian communities were redirected to reproduce the Western way of life. The blood quantum requirements also began what would be the internal racial factionalism segregation of full blood versus mixed blood at many of the reservations, which was one of the foundations for the racial patrimonialism that brought instability and violence to the Pine Ridge Reservation. As the impact of the 1887 Allotment Act became evident, the Reorganization Act was implemented in 1934 to invert the earlier policies and once again make the Native American land ownership communal. This was to be achieved through increased self-sufficiency and independency based on local industry, agriculture, native craft and more Native American political sovereignty. Yet the 1934 Act was substantially watered down to pass Congress. This meant that the reversal of early allotment was on a voluntary basis. It also brought about the establishment of a democratically elected tribal government. However, such was under the control of the federal government, and as Stephen Connell puts it, at the bottom of an administrative hierarchy. This failure of self-determination did not reopen a proper space for the indigenous cultural identity and way of life. In the 1940s and 1950s, the policymaking was once again changed, this time towards assimilation into the mainstream society. With the high point of nationalism during the Second World War and FDR's New Deal, Policies were implemented that favored integration of Native Americans into the global economy, moving away from the reservations. 
Such was brought about by reallocation programs and job training. According to Dillian Meyer, who was the commissioner of the BIA, the intentions were to bring Indians into mainstream society on a massive scale. The policy continued but was eventually tweaked, whereas in the 1950s, the termination of Native American reservations was on the agenda. However, such was only implemented with a few reservations as the policy met too much resistance from both Native American communities and parts of Congress. When the outcome of the relocation and termination policies turned out to be insufficient, self-determination was once again favored in the 1970s. At this time, the reservation had been brought back and forth on the political spectrum and struggled to develop or maintain a strong cultural identity and a socio-economic stability. In the early 1970s, the unemployment rate for Native Americans in South Dakota was 20.1%, compared to the 3.2% for the white population. Over half of the population lived in poverty. National Native American unemployment was 10 times the average, and life expectancy a third less than average. And such is the long-running historical foundation for the occupation of Wounded Knee in 1973. On the Pine Ridge Reservation, the inconsistent shift in policy and the implementation of self-determination without a strong socioeconomic structure paved the way for the tribal chairman Dick Wilson, who brought patrimonialism and racial segregation in accordance to bloodlines, which destabilized the reservation and sparked the Wunini occupation of 1973. So what was it with those 71 days that made it more than a violent reclaim of land? And why is it argued that occupation itself brought back a pride in the indigenous identity? Once again, Dennis Banks provides more clarity. Before the American Indian movement, our people lived in despair. Many were ashamed of being Indian. After Wounded Knee, we became warriors again. As this hints, we ought to look at the personal experiences that speaks of both loss and regain of the cultural identity before, during and after the occupation of Wounded Knee in 1973. As part of the assimilation projects during the 19th and 20th century, many Native Americans were forced out of their communities and into boarding schools. The intentions behind the forced institutionalization policies were to westernize Native Americans at an early age to assimilate them into the American mainstream society. Today, it is evident that such came with dire impacts as many Native Americans experienced government attempts to create nonlinear breaks in their social and cultural identities. According to Carolyn Marr, The goal of the Indian education from the 1880s through the 1920s was to assimilate Indian people into the melting pot of America by placing them in institutions where traditional ways could be replaced by those sanctioned by the government. Federal Indian policy called for the removal of children from their families and, in many cases, enrollment in a government-run boarding school. In this way, the policymakers believed young people would be immersed in the values and practical knowledge of the dominant American society, while also being kept away from any influences imparted by their traditionally-minded relatives. The structures of these institutions are today well known for their oppressive approaches to achieve forced assimilation. 
Such included sexual and non-sexual abuse, abuse from peers organized by staff, poor living conditions, insufficient supply of nutrients, and an educational system which was not organized to educate Native Americans to achieve socioeconomic mobility, but to remain in the situation that they started in. Through this, many Native Americans were taught to despise their cultural and social identity, which in cases led to confusion of the individual identity. According to Bill Wright, I remember coming home and my grandma asked me to talk Indian to her, and I said, Grandma, I don't understand you. She said, then who are you? The early 1970s, continuing into the 1980s, also marked a dark period of extensive government-funded forced sterilization of Native American women. By the early 1970s, between 100,000 and 150,000 socioeconomic disenfranchised individuals were subjected to forced sterilization annually. In 1982, 45% of Native American women had been sterilized, compared to 15% of white women and 24 of the African American female population. By the 1980s, the Native American birth rate had fallen from 3.8 children to 1.8 children. This has often been the core issue of Native American assimilation policies. That is, very few indigenous cultures are given the space to assimilate on their terms. Instead, they often are or have been forced to give up their own social and cultural foundation. With the occupation in 1973, AIM focused on something important to many of the Native American communities. A pride in being Native American. A pride in their identity. For both the front figures of AIM, the very creation of AIM was based on their reconnection with their indigenous identity. Dennis Banks educated himself during time in prison for a pity crime, and as he himself explains... Then I became highly interested in the path I was about to take. I wanted to be more part of helping Native people. I had seen in the news about 200,000 people in the street. They were speaking about black civil rights. They were speaking about the war in Vietnam, women's rights. But no one was speaking for Native people. The situation was similar for the second front figure of AIM, Russell Means. He was born on the Pine Ridge Reservation, but in his youth obtained an education in California. He soon after returned to the reservation, which reconnected him with the indigenous identity. His focus became solely the support of fighting racial oppression of Native American communities. Many of the participants of the Wounded Knee Occupation had similar experiences. According to Joanne Nagel, many young and educated Indians in the 1970s saw the progress of the civil rights movements and simultaneously gained a deeper understanding of their own oppression. In doing so, many came to terms with their indigenous identity. During the occupation, the focus on the indigenous culture was evident. According to Larry Anderson, We all meet every evening and had our little powwow. And then, of course, a lot of inspirational talk. We talked about life, we talked about family, we talked about Mother Earth and Father Sky and how it was reverent to our future way of life. I knew this was my place to go, to defend my land and my treaties, to defend my own people. According to Leonardo Wabasha, 
It was all about community. We were trying to bring back the old ways. We were demonstrating who we were. During the occupation, Dennis Banks would spiritually and culturally connect every morning with his ancestors by spending time by the Wooden Knee Massacre Monument. This is how he explains it. I ask for spiritual help, for closure for one thing, to bring closure to the massacre, but I also did it to seek help. What this goes to show is that during the occupation, the Native American participants even though in open militant conflict with the FBI and the Marshal Service, were not helpless, not alone, and not lost, not displaced, not ashamed. They were Indians, and proud to be. This has been proven crucial to Native Americans today. According to one study by David Schieffer and Barbara Cray. Our study supports previous findings that American Indians identifying with one's culture of origin was linked to psychological well-being and indicated enhanced feelings of personal control. Behavioral competencies that enable American Indians to function in an environment dominated by white mainstream was found to be associated with enhanced self-efficacy and among adults at least, also with lower helplessness. A sense of affiliation with the dominant group was linked to a lower level of self-efficacy and again among adults, also to a higher level of learned helplessness. For the Native Americans of the occupation of Wounded Knee in 1973, this was what the occupation was about. It was about themselves, their rights to determine their future, and their rights to determine their identities. Hence, even though the occupation was heavily militarized, it is also crucial to begin to understand the deeper and more complex historical and socio-psychological context which the occupation arose from and that it aimed to achieve something reaching far beyond civil unrest. This to see the occupation of Wounded Knee for what it was. This is one of the responsibilities of our time. We need to look at the event in actuality, look at the totality of Indian history, and look at the aftermath of the occupation to understand the various aspects that have limited Native American communities from re-strengthening their socio-economic foundations based on their values. Sadly, the occupation did not transform the situation substantially on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Dick Wilson was reinstituted as tribal president and the federal government broke most of the negotiated promises. According to Alexander Fuller, writing for the National Geographic, Broken treaties between the U.S. and the Oglala Sioux remained broken. The tribal government remained as corrupt as ever, and those rebellious days had long and violent afterlife. Between March 1st, 1973 and March 1st, 1976, the murder rate on Pine Ridge Reservation was more than 17 times the national average. Yet, aim and occupation did achieve one crucial aspect for Native American communities. It emphasized pride in the Native American culture and started a reaction that in many ways 
lay as the foundation for clearer and better understandings of the importance of Native American identity. To many Native Americans, the knowledge and understanding of and pride in their Native American identity gives them an advantage the few have, a dual cultural identity, and one they can be proud of. Here we are ending on the note of Alexandra Fuller. The AIM activist had made two things abidingly and indelibly clear. The United States government would never again dismiss Indian people as bothersome obstacles to an otherwise perfectly executed manifest destiny, and being native, resisting colonization and assimilation was something to which people could proudly dedicate their lives. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast on the occupation of Wounded Knee and the importance of the Native American identity. For more information, keep updated. We will be posting at least one interview with uh, a Native American historian that have substantial and in-depth knowledge about the occupation in Wounded Knee and also regarding the importance of having the authority to decide over your own identity. For the Occupation of Wounded Knee narrative, I'm Tim Lindgren. <laughs>